Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to give you a little plan for the morning because I want you to make the journey. Um, it's not a real complicated exposition. Sometimes we have an exposition that's complicated that takes some time to really engage and do the work to expose. We don't really have a difficult exposition this morning. What's going to be difficult are three perspectives on that exposition. And really, only two of those three are going to be difficult. They could be potentially difficult to follow. So I'm asking you, as I prayed just now, to be especially attentive. I want to give you a kind of a heads up when we're moving into those difficult places so you can be especially tuned in. Uh, the last thing that we're going to consider this morning will be the easiest to engage. So if you're tuckered out before we get there, you'll be okay because it'll be easy to engage. The first two things are a little more difficult. The exposition will be easy. Uh, will be, um, we're going to reap the work that we've been doing the last few weeks where it's going to just sort of spill out the exposition. So let's climb into our passage, Hebrews chapter 3, and I'll expose what we're going to consider this morning, and then we're going to engage it in three different directions. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's what we've been doing these last few weeks. It's been a series of messages on considering Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This Sunday and next, we're going to be considering really that last half or last two-thirds of that last verse. But something we really haven't engaged these last few weeks, really a couple of months that we've engaged this passage, is what's being said here about the house. Our perspective on this passage has really been, as I already said, to consider Jesus. We've considered these things, his role as apostle, his role as high priest, his faithfulness like Moses, certainly more faithful than Moses, but the Hebrews preacher's not saying he's more faithful than Moses here. They already have a high view of Moses. He's saying he's faithful like Moses, He's as worthy of glory, more so worthy of glory than the builder of a house as the house itself. Sort of difficult to follow. You may remember that Sunday where we considered how awesome a house might be, how worldly we might be to consider the house and never consider the builder. The ancient mind wouldn't have thought that way. They would have thought about the builder. And he's saying that God is worthy of more glory than the house itself, as much as Christ is, more glory than Moses are the people of God is where we're going this morning. We consider these last few weeks that all these different perspectives on Christ, but what we've really been getting at that we're going to sort of bring home this morning, sort of put into one hand this morning, is that we've been considering Jesus for the purpose of 
developing the reality that we're going to consider this morning that God has been building a house with his son being Lord over that house. I haven't engaged this this morning. We touched on it a few weeks ago that this passage is really about, ultimately about God's house. There's a parenthetical verse right in the center that's easy to dismiss because it's parenthetical, but it really shouldn't be parenthetical. The verse is verse 4. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The builder of all things is God is really what this passage is about. And that that thing that's built is the people of God. That we are his house is where we're going to be camping out this morning. This passage mentions house seven times. If you want a good study tool for how to study the Bible, look for repeated words or phrases. And in this passage, the word house is repeated seven times. So it's a little clue that the passage is ultimately going to be about God's house. And what we're going to consider this morning is that we are God's house. We're going to pick that apart from every single direction. We're going to consider, first of all, that we are his house. Secondly, that we are his house. And third, that we, real people with real names, and real stories and real lives are his house. That's the plan for the morning. But before we climb into that, I just want to show you something in John chapter 14. Just listen to it. I, I say I'm going to show it to you, but I'm going to read it to you. Considering this morning that this passage is about God's house and that we are God's house, you can read a very familiar passage or hear a very familiar passage with a new set of ears in John chapter 14. Listen to this passage. This passage has often been preached at funerals, but you can hear it with a new set of eyes, knowing that God's not talking about something in the future, but he's talking about something that we are living in and walking in right now. Listen to this passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This passage is likely familiar to you, like you've, likely you've heard it at a, at a funeral or in some setting where we're talking about a, this future plan for this future dwelling place. And while that has some application, it is very limited. It is a thin sliver of what he's actually talking about right here because he's about to go to the cross. Peter has just made him the promise moments before. He says, you know what? I'm going to follow you anywhere. Why can't I follow you now? And Jesus said, said this to him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And then moments later, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. What he's talking about is not going to some future plan where he's walking around building a, a heaven for us right now with a tool belt around his waist. What he's talking about, he's going to the cross. Peter, I'm about to go to the cross, although you're going to follow me later in your own version of that, your own upside-down version of that. You can't follow me now because nobody can do what I'm about to do. I'm about to go build a house, and I'm going to do it on a chunk of wood. When we consider this passage properly and appropriately, we realize what's being said here, that we are his house and that it was a built by this Jesus that we've been considering the last few weeks. And he's son over that house. 
then it should change our view on what took place on the cross. We should see, instead of him wearing a tool belt right now up there, hammering away on some heavenly dwelling, we should see him wearing the tool belt as he walked down the Via Dolorosa to go to Golgotha. That's where he got the work done. That's where the tools and the hammers and the nails were applied for a dwelling place. And we're not talking about some future heavenly dwelling for us. We're talking about the people of God right now. Changes that meaning altogether. It adds it, really. It doesn't change it. It adds a whole new weight to it, a whole new importance to it, where it's not just a funeral passage. It's a passage for the church to celebrate and enjoy right now. He has built a dwelling place through the work of the cross, and we are that dwelling place. Envision him dragging that cross down the Via Dolorosa wearing a tool belt because he's about to go get it done. And look at us, 2,000 years later, looking back on that moment as the day that he did it. He's not up there hammering away on some heavenly dwelling. According to Hebrews, where is he? He is seated at the Father's right hand. Seated. Because his work is finished. Amen? Yes. Now, three things that we're going to consider this morning. See, the unpacking is not difficult. It sort of fell into our laps because we've done the work of considering Jesus, and now we can consider that through his work as apostle, high priest, and a faithful one like Moses, that he's built a house for us through the cross and that we are that house. Three things we're going to consider this morning. First is that we are his house. We, the church, are his house. I wanted to hear this passage and read this passage as a Hebrew would have read it, as a Hebrew believer in this context, the Hebrew church is who this was written to. And if I wanted to go where they would have gone, because we need to go where they would have gone, and if they're hearing these words that we are his house, their minds would have immediately gone to where his dwelling places used to be. The first place his dwelling place was, was in the tabernacle. The nation of Israel is moving across the wilderness to move to the promised land. God gave them instructions for how to build the tabernacle. It's where we've been camping out on Wednesday nights as a church. Great detail. We've gone into the construction and what all went into it. The dwelling place for God used to be a mobile tent called the tabernacle that moved with the people as they wandered through the wilderness. And then it moved with the people as they went through the conquest in the promised land. And then after they kind of did their partial conquest, because they didn't really finish the conquest, it was parked at Shiloh for about 300 years. All the while, people pined to build a a permanent version of it in Jerusalem. David wanted to do it, and God said, you know what? You're not going to do it. You're a warrior. I'm going to let your son do it, Solomon. And Solomon built the first temple, the first static version of the tabernacle. So first there's the tabernacle, And then there's the more permanent version called the temple. And then in Mark chapter 13, don't turn there. I'm going to tell you where I want you to turn this morning because I'm going to a lot of passages. So I I want to conserve your energy. Mark chapter 13, listen to this. As they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. These disciples right here are speaking about the temple. Now, specifically, they're not speaking about Solomon's temple because Solomon's temple was destroyed. This would be Herod's temple. But it's the permanent version of where God's going to dwell. The mobile version was the tabernacle. 
The permanent version would be the temple. And here the disciples are marveling at how beautiful this static version of God's dwelling place is in the temple. And Jesus says to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about that same very event where he's going to go to the cross and he's going to build them a place to dwell. It's not going to happen in that very moment, but it's actually going to happen at Pentecost where God then moves into his people. And then it happens completely, and this is fulfilled 70 years A.D., where Herod's temple's destroyed. And just as Jesus said, there's not one stone left on top of another. You see the beauty of how these historic events unfolded, and you see God's planning, and you see God's timing, and you see his fingerprints all over it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What I'm going to show you here in these next few minutes is that we are his house, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Tabernacle was replaced with the temple, and the temple was replaced with the church. We are his dwelling place. Listen to this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know, Corinthian church, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, if you have an ESV, you might notice that there's a little note in the bottom of your Bible there that's an important note. In my ESV, it has for a little note number three there, the Greek for you is plural in verses 16 and 17. I want to read to you how typically the Western mind will read this passage. And when I say Western mind, I'm not talking about cowboys. I'm talking about typically Westerners as in Americans, not exclusively, but at least in our context individualistic sort of people, which we are. You may not realize that. I'm not being critical. That's just who we are. We think in terms of individuals. Here's how we would typically read this passage. Do you not know that each of you are God's temples and that God's spirit dwells in each of you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and each of you are his temple. This sort of mindset goes hand in hand with the teaching which is not even a real biblical teaching, of Jesus moving into your little hearts and asking Jesus into your hearts and you having a personal relationship with God. Is there some element of truth to that? Yes, it is a thin sliver, though, of the massive teaching that's in our New Testaments that teaches about what happened at at Pentecost, what happened at the cross, what happened seven weeks later at Pentecost, and what happened in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. God moved into a people Does God indwell us in the the person of the Holy Spirit individually? Yes. But that is a thin sliver of truth. It's a truth compared to the massive reality that he has moved into a people. This passage should be read. Do you not know? I'm going to read it as a Westerner, like cowboy Westerner, because maybe that word for us in Greenville. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple? That's what's being said here. I've got cowboy boots on today for this, for this reason. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? 
We could take it a whole different direction. I mean, you could be kind of a preppy person. Don't you know that you guys are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you guys. I'm joking about it, but I want you to understand what's being said here. The Corinthians needed to hear this. Don't you know, Corinthian church, that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church with the same thing the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church with. Y'all are the dwelling place for the people of God. The Hebrews church is on the bubble. They're considering bailing on Christ because he's hard. They're considering going back to the known and the easy Judaism. They say, man, don't you know that God moved into y'all at Pentecost? Don't you know that he dwells now among and in you as the church? Don't bail on that. Corinthian church, don't live with one foot in the world and one foot in the faith. Don't you know that God dwells in you? He moved into you at Pentecost. 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't turn there. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as I'm looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read this passage to you. It's another version of what's being said. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Listen to this as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As you come to him, Paul, or Peter's reading to believers that are dispersed all over the Roman Empire. Speaking to Christians that are all over the Roman Empire. He says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, you might be reading this letter from Peter as an individual or as a little church, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You yourselves, plural, are being built up into a singular spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have to work hard, a bunch of Americans, to hear this message for what's really being said because it's very easy for us to dismiss the local church as, ah, that's just church. Me and God got this thing going because I asked Jesus into my heart. And you need to hear the potent message of the New Testament is that God moved into a people. He dwelled with a people up to the cross. He traveled with them in tabernacle and in temple. And at the cross... And then Pentecost, well, he moved in. And we are that people. Don't hear me devaluing, asking Jesus to become your Lord and Savior. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not devaluing that. But compared to the massive truth of him moving into a people, it's a thin truth. It's a small truth. It's a truth nonetheless. But it's a wafer-thin thing compared to this elephant that he's moved into a people and that people is the church now that second corinthians passage i asked you to turn to give me a second to get there and we'll look at it together second corinthians chapter six this is a passage dealing with um being unequally yoked as you're about to hear but listen to where he takes it also to the corinthian church a church with a foot in the world and a foot in the faith do not be unequally yoked, church, with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? 
Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God, there it is again, with idols? For we, plural, are the singular temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what we've been talking about for weeks. I I don't know if you're connecting this dot, but thinking back about pre-fall, pre-Adam and Eve, taking and eating what was forbidden, God walked with man in the cool of the day, and they had sweet fellowship, and then they're evicted from the garden. And you remember Eve pining for that God-man that would get them back into the garden? That's what Jesus has done, and that's what Paul's saying right here. He says, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that is because what Christ has done, God's moved back into his people, and he's walking among us, and he's dwelling among us, and he's writing that letter to a church. He's not writing it to an individual. He's writing it to a people. Through Christ's work, He walks among us again. I want you to think for a moment about this thing that I'm going to call geographic salvation. It's one guy that I read was writing about it, and I'm going to put it in my words. Geographic salvation, he described as a point in time in the the redemptive story where if um, Amorite or a Philistine or a, a Malachite wanted to learn about Yahweh, where did they have to go? They had to go to the Israelites. They couldn't just go anywhere. They couldn't go scratch up something or go sit underneath the starry sky and figure God out. They needed to go to the Israelites because the Israelites had the goods on who Yahweh was. So they had to go to the Israelites. Geographic salvation meant they had to find wherever they are, I need to go to Yahweh's people. What I want you to hear right now is that we are Yahweh's people. If someone wants to learn about Yahweh... If someone wants to learn what Yahweh has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ, where do they go? They go to the church. It's not geographic anymore because we're like this. We disperse into L3, into the courthouse, into wherever, Oak Creek Estates, into Kazakhstan, or into Jordan, or into the southern tip of Mexico, or into various places. We go like this. So it's not geographic salvation anymore, but it is is church-centric salvation. You think you can find Christ apart from the church? I don't know that you can. Can an evangelist swoop into town and tell you a teary story about how life there, how bad their life was before Jesus and how Jesus changed their life and you might have some sort of prayer of conversion? Can that take place? Yes, I think it can take place. But ideally, the next step is that you connect to a body of believers. You connect to the church. Geographic salvation. The reality is that those who don't know Christ need to come to the people of God to hear the preaching of his word. Where else are you going to hear it? Where else are you going to hear it? Those who don't know Christ need to come to the church to see the gifts exercised. Where else are you going to be the receiving end of his gifts? Those who don't know Christ need to come to the church to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. Where else are you going to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit? Apart from the church. Where else are people going to be on the receiving end of Christ's 
hands ministering through deacons apart from the church. The notion of a believer being independent apart from the church just doesn't even make sense. Can it happen? God is able to do anything and everything. But the New Testament story is about a people and God dwelling among a people. And we are his house. We are his house. We're his house. Think about that for a minute. Just let that hit you for a minute. It should cause you to pause. And it should cause you to think for a minute, what does it say about me if I don't see that? Or I don't believe that way? What happens if we don't have a view of this? Here's some thoughts. You could really camp out on this and kind of develop some thoughts, but here's a few that I have. What happens if you see yourself as his house more than you see the church as his house? Now, notice I didn't say instead. Because are we individually his dwelling place? Yes. But what happens if you have a bigger view of that than you do of him moving into a people? Well, I'm afraid you might see yourself sort of as a free agent. Accountable to nobody. If you have a more distinct view of his moving into you at the point of conversion or whatever it's going to be than you do of him dwelling among a people, i.e. the church, you're going to see yourself as a free agent. You're going to be accountable to essentially nobody except your live-in deity. You hear that? You see that? When someone tries to hold you accountable to something in the church, you're going to go, who are you? Me and God got something going. I don't need you. I'll go another place. I'll go somewhere else where they don't do that to me. Because that's mean. It's ridiculous. And you know what? I wouldn't say it unless I've seen it happen a many, 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 many times in nine years of pastoring. Many, many, many times. And if the next nine is anything like the last nine, it will happen to some of you. reality of Christ indwelling you will trump the reality of Christ dwelling among his people. Where you're like, who are you? I don't need you. Whenever things get uncomfortable or don't suit you, you can pick up and leave because you're the temple and God goes wherever you go. I'm going to tell you right now, that's very American. It may be just human. I don't know. I've never lived in other lands. But it just sounds very American. <laughs> right? I see a lot of people nodding because I, I think we know ourselves, don't we? Can we be honest and think about how our identity as Americans could somehow infiltrate into our view of the faith? Where then we could be free agents very easily? Man. I think another consequence is that you would see that you or feel like you have no responsibility to his people. You're responsible to God, but not anybody else. What do you mean I have a responsibility? What do you mean we're members of one another? Me and God have this thing going, and it's really good. He's never let me down, but you have. People have. Do you realize that the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church with the reminder that we are his house? 
He's confronting that reality. Do you think there were ever occasions where Hebrews' brothers and sisters disappointed each other? You think there was ever occasion in the Hebrew church where one person said they were going to show up for something and they didn't? You think there was ever an occasion in the Hebrews church where one person put something on Facebook that didn't offend another person? And the Hebrews preachers say, man, y'all, you together, we are his house. That trumps all the little indwelling realities, the little personal realities. We are his house. We are responsible to God and to each other. I'm responsible to the brick to my left and my right and the one above me and below me. The, the uh, Second Peter or First Peter passage I just read. You see that? If you think to yourself, man, I don't think I, they really need me for this, then just know that in the wall that day, when you just say, I, psh, I'm not going to bother, they won't miss me, there's a hole in the wall. When you say, no, they don't need my gifts, they don't need my presence, they don't need my involvement in this, know that there's a hole or multiple holes in the wall, depending on how many people say that. You look like Swiss cheese. See that? We're his dwelling place. Second thing to consider. Okay, that was the first hard thing. Here's the second hard thing. We are his house. I think this is less hard than the first one, so we'll see. We'll find out here in a minute. We are his house. What I want you to see next is there is continuity in the house. Look back at your Hebrews passage. If you're not there, then turn there real quick. Hebrews chapter 3. told Christy this morning, I'm dreading this sermon because I just imagine that people will be like, man, this is hard. It's hard work. And I'm just begging you, don't let Satan keep you from doing the work in these next few minutes because it's going to be worth it if you do. I promise. Listen to this development in verse 2. Moses was faithful in all God's house. And Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory the builder of house has more honor than the house itself. I jump to verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. What I want you to see next is continuity in this. Moses is a servant in the house, in verse 5. Christ is the son over the house, in verse 6. And then also in verse 6, we are the house. Now you have to think back and realize that this first part, Moses being a servant in the house, that Moses was a servant within the nation of Israel. The house at that time was Israel, and Moses was faithful as a servant in Israel. And Christ is faithful as a son over the house, and now the, the house sort of straddles Israel and the church with the next statement being, we are his house. What I want you to see right here is continuity with Israel. That we are the new Israel. Moses served in it. Christ served and serves over it. And we now are it. 
I'm going to say it again because it's just so important. I just, I, don't, I just don't want you to miss it. Moses served in it. Christ served over it and serves over it. And we now are it. We are the new Israel. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to show you in this passage this development. It's really pretty cool. And I think it's really, in my opinion, evidence for a couple things. Between this Hebrews passage and between this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, there's really no room for dispensationalism. For some of you who might think, okay, I'm a dispensationalist, most of you probably don't even care what that is. Some of you might say, that's what I am. I want you to know that this, in many ways, disproves the notion of God working in different dispensations with different people in different ways. That God's been working out a story over the ages is really what's being communicated here to the Hebrews preacher and what's being communicated here in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this development beginning in verse 11. Now realize this letter, Ephesians, is written to a church that's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Listen to what he says. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made by or made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now, I'm going to put my finger on verse 13, so I'm going to kind of figuratively pause that for a second. And I want to show you something. And I've already been told that this is going to be hard to see from wherever you are. So I'm sorry. I'm going to get better at this. You know, thankfully, he's not finished with us yet. So I've, I've got some room for improvement. But everybody up here is really going to get something good in the next few minutes. Everybody else is going to be like, man, I wish I'd sat right here in, the, in, the, in front. Put that first one up. Okay. Now, I'm going to acquaint you with this. I thought I was an improvement because my line was straight and I made my writing legible. But it's still tiny, it turns out. So I'm going to just tell you what's on this line. Okay, and we're going to flesh this line out, and then I'm going to show you, coming back to this passage and the Hebrews passage, of what actually has happened in the work of the cross. Okay? On this line up here, on the far left, there's a little line that says 2K BC. That's for 2,000 years before Christ. The next line is 1K BC. That's 1,000 years. Right at the center, there's a wee little cross. That's the cross. You just look at the whole work of Christ, his incarnation and his uh, cross and his ascension, all of that right there. 1K AD is to the right, and then 2K AD all the way in the far right. Okay, let's start filling this thing. Hit me with the next slide. Okay, far left end. Now, let me tell you, tell you this, too. This is pretty cool. Every Wednesday night when I teach the third through sixth graders, this is the very first thing we do. Because I want them to see that we are God's house. That there is continuity with Israel and with us. It's one big storyline. Okay. This little ugly, uh, poor little drawing. Okay. Abraham is on the far end. I put Abe just for fun. Okay. There's nothing fun about it. It's just short for Abraham. Okay. 2K BC. Now, that's not written in stone either. That's generally around 2,000 years before Christ was Abraham. Okay. Next. Moses and the Exodus, about 1,500 years before Christ. Next. King David, about 1,000 years before Christ. Next. Babylonian exile, around that kind of range in there, 600 to 400 B.C., 
give or take 100 years, 200 years, it's around in there. Middle of that thousand-year period is the Babylonian exile. Okay? The cross is right at the center. Next. About three to 400 years A.D., a guy that we've looked at together as a church, a guy named Athanasius, who went up against a guy named Arius that was teaching a, 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 a teaching that was heresy, basically teaching that there was a time when Jesus was not, which isn't true. Jesus has always been. He taught there was a time when Jesus was not, and St. Nicholas became most famous, for, uh, in my mind, for slapping Arius upside his face. It's cool. You can see old frescoes and stuff that show St. Nick reaching over and slapping Arius up in his face, all up in his face, for saying that Jesus uh, had a time when he was not. That's around 300-something, 400-something A.D. Next. 1,500 years or so A.D., Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli. Those are the guys that are the reason that I'm not wearing a tall, pointy, funny hat. It's the reason we're not Catholic. That's when the Protestant Reformation happened. These guys are all on the same storyline. Okay, next. And then we out on the far right end, 2,000 years A.D., and obviously that's not perfect because it's 2012 now, C.F. But we've been around for nine years, so that's pretty close. C.F. entered that storyline nine years ago. Hit me with the next thing. Little bitty lines I drew underneath there for emphasis. Hit me with the next thing. And then I circled it. Because it's really important. It's really important that you see that we're on this storyline. And I really feel bad for all y'all sitting on the far corners because this would really hit you. You would really be waylaid by the truth, vast amount of truth that's (laughs) expressed in this little drawing. But what I want you to see that I want third through sixth graders to see, that I want my own children to see, that I want every single shepherd and every single family in this church to see that we are on one storyline with Israel. We are the new Israel. I, heard one, I read one guy that said this. It's so good. He said, Israel is the bud to which the church is the flower. Man, that's good medicine right there. You know what that says to me too? It says that this whole Bible, that I don't just have to hang out in the last quarter of it and try and make sense of it, but that I can read the whole thing and know that this is our story that when, when our kids sing Father Abraham, I don't have to tell him, shut up, you don't sing that as a Jewish song. That's for little Jewish kids. Come here, let me beat you about head and shoulders saying Abraham's your father. We can sing it together. That'd be funny if, if, if Clint led us in that, our Father Abraham. <laughs> we have a right to that song. I'm going to go back to Ephesians. Listen. Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by the hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You weren't even on the storyline. Remember that, Ephesians? Remember back then before the cross when you weren't even on the storyline you wanted to be, but you were a nasty Philistine or Amorite, or Amalekite. But now, two sweet words. But now, you've entered the storyline. In Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is now 
our peace. Paul, as a Jew, is writing to a bunch of Philistines, I'm speaking figuratively, Gentiles, saying he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. That word, what would be a really good translation for that word? What that, that word man right there means? One new humanity. He's made a whole new people. That's what he did in the cross. He took the Jew and he took the Gentile and in the work of the cross made a whole new house. A whole new house for his name. And it's called the church. In place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, here at one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and he preached peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, because we're on the same storyline. So then you who are no longer strangers... But now you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see it? Paul wants his guys to understand that. The Hebrews preacher wants his guys to understand that. And I want as cumbersome a sermon as it might be for us to understand that we are his house. <laughs> Man, that's the goods right there. That's the goods. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'm going to tell you what, like, you take a passage like that, and I'm going to tell you right now, I think it's, I'm not going to say criminal, I think it's a travesty that there's such thing as a Messianic Jewish church. What is a Messianic Jewish church? There's just the church. If somebody says, man, we're a New Testament church. We don't deal with a lot of that historical stuff. I say, what? It's just the church. It's the people of God, period. He, through the work of the cross, broke down any dividing walls. So it's just the church, and the church is the flower to Israel that's the bud. When you see a truth like this, you're going to see the whole book is our story, and you're going to see the story of God building his house throughout and seeing yourself in the story. It's going to change the way you hear sermons. It's going to change the way you talk to your kids. It's going to change your view of your role in Greenville. It'll change your view of what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings. It'll change your view on what membership means. I'm telling you, it, it will change and transform all those things. If you see yourself, though, as separate from the storyline, you won't see the connection between God's work in and with them and his work in and with you. You really will see the story is kind of over, and you're just kind of responding to it, hoping to, anyway. 
You won't see his pattern of faithfulness over time as something that you fit within. Emphasis with over time. You may find yourself myopic. Myopic is a fancy way of saying nearsighted. C.S. Lewis used it, used a term called cultural myopia. I guess it would be myopia. When you're saying it that way, it becomes myopia. Cultural myopia, whenever you view that our present culture and time is the wisest and most intellectually bright and insightful period in all of history. He's like, man, you need to go back and read some of the guys before us to find out. Oh, we've forgotten a lot. We're a little number and dumber than they were. But you go back and you, you, you realize, you read those guys and you realize, man, that was pretty potent and it humbles you a little bit and you become less myopic. Myopic is nearsightedness, and we can be nearsighted in view of our faith and our life and our journey with Christ. You might actually think this. It can be hard. You might actually think you're a special little snowflake and that God has a special plan for your life. You might think you're a special little snowflake and God has a special plan for your life and then, frankly, you're going to be just downright bamboozled when something goes south. I've been bamboozled. It's a good word. I don't know where it came from. I don't even know if it's, if it's used rightly. It's just like it. God, I've been bamboozled. I had a special plan for my life. I'm a special little snowflake. So why now am I looking at lions in the Colosseum that want to eat me? Why now am I being called to sell everything and go to a foreign land and I can't sleep at night because I'm so burdened for this people group? Why now am I having to submit to this joker? <gasps> I've been bamboozled. I thought I was a special snowflake and I had a special plan for my life and yet this is the guy I'm married to? And yet you're telling me that I need to submit to him and follow him? and honor him and respect him? I mean, this is where it plays out. Right here. If you're myopic and short-sighted, you won't see that you're on this big storyline and that God will do something with you, maybe with that frustrating man. Where your children may see what faith looks like as you submit to a guy that's difficult to submit to. As you follow a guy that's not loving you as Christ loved the church, but you do it because you love Jesus. Just using that as an example. Examples are legion. But if you're myopic, you're going to feel bamboozled. You're going to be upset that God would allow something that doesn't fit within your narrow view of your snowflakeness. I thought a couple of interesting things in regards to that point. We're about to get to the easy point, but we're not there yet. Listen to this. You know, I, I've imagined often what it must have been like for an Israelite to live in Egypt and to be a slave. 
you got a period of 400 years where you're making bricks. Now, there's the potential there in a generation to have parents who lived and died as slaves. You could potentially live and die as a slave, and your children could live and die as slaves. In a 400-year period, that could certainly happen. And I've thought about how frustrating it would be for those children if their parents told them, Honey, you're a special little snowflake, and God has a special plan for your life. And they're making bricks. And they're slaves. And I thought about this. Don't turn to this passage. Just listen to it. Genesis chapter 15. God is speaking with Abram. Abe. Far end. As the sun's going down, Abe falls into a deep sleep. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This, it's appropriate based on what he's about to hear. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and they will be servants there. Slaves. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here to Canaan in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You hear that last phrase? As your parents lived and died in Egypt as a slave, as you're reaching old age as a slave in Egypt, and you're thinking about the, the grim outlook for your kid who's going to live and die in Egypt as a slave, would you be thinking, he's doing this because he's waiting for the wickedness of the Amorites to come in? The Amorites aren't wicked enough yet. I wonder how many of them were thinking that. They all should have been thinking that. But God had a plan that was bigger than their snowflakeness. And God is still God, and he's still good. He's working out a storyline that you may find yourself on a part of the storyline that doesn't make for snowflakeness. It might make for being eaten by a lion for the glory of God. It might make for living with a difficult man for the rest of your life as an act of worship. It might make for living with a physical illness or a sorry, our disability for the glory of God. Man, let me tell you something. The snowflakeness comes from being in a line. That's the treasure, being in the storyline. That's the treasure. Myopia. Myopia. You miss out on a big God who's doing great things always. I read... 
these last few weeks, I was reading back in 2 Kings. I was reading about Josiah's reforms. I just finished 1 and 2 Kings and this roller coaster of faithful king, unfaithful king. You know, Hezekiah does good things. He lives a few years longer. And I saw Josiah. Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in a way that David, his father, walked. And he didn't turn aside to the right or the left. And he did these amazing reforms. And he reformed Judah in a way that was just like, oh, yeah, God's going to bless him. Now, watch. And then God says in verse, or it says in verse 26, Still the Lord did not turn from burning of his, his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because all of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. It'd be very easy for Josiah to say, you know what? God, you failed me there. But the reality is God was working out a story that was bigger than Josiah. And the real treat for Josiah was to even be on the storyline. Right? That's the treat. That's the treasure. That's the gift. It's to be on the storyline and know that we have a good God that's working out a plan for his own glory. And the fact that we get to be part of it is the cream. That's the cream. We are his house. We are on the storyline. The church is the flower and Israel is the bud. Man. The third thing, this is the easy one. We are his house. This is the part where I just want you to sit back and listen. I don't want you to turn to any passages because I'm going to share a few passages with you. And they actually make me laugh because I can't believe I've never really read them this way. We are his house. If I ask the question based on what we've just considered that the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church with the reality that the church is his house that we are his house, there's continuity between Israel and the church, that he's dwelling among us. And then third, the, the question, okay, well, how should we view the local church then? Well, we should view it like he just said, as the temple and the house spoken of in these previous verses. Here's the secret. It's not figured. It's not figurative. It's not figurative. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's not speaking figuratively, idealistically, notionally. He's speaking about real people that shake each other's hands and hug each other and know each other and sometimes bother each other. He's talking about real people. While it's a spiritual house, it's a physical reality. It's not figurative. I told you just listen. Listen to this development. This is a passage I read a moment ago, and that's why I'm going to go back here, because hearing what's said at the end will be cool. I read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you people, y'all, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. It'd be very easy if we just left that there for that to just kind of stay figurative. Oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yes. It's 
Very cool. But then this book, or this letter, I can't say this book. This letter ends with this. Listen to uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. I will visit you, Paul ends the letter with these words. I will visit you, this church, after passing through Macedonia. I'm going to visit you, and I might need a place to stay. Like a place to lay down my real body. Like at night. And like really sleep. Because I'm real. So somebody might have to be inconvenienced with giving me actually a place to stay. Like change the sheets and stuff. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. <laughs> the Corinthians are like, oh, no, Paul's going to stay for the winter. I can handle about three days of Paul. He says he's going to stay for the winter, though, so woo, we better get to work. Better get the deacons to work on a place to stay so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some real time with you if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, when Tim comes, Timothy. I'm saying Tim because so we can think of it more like an everyday name. Although you could have the name Timothy now. It's okay. When Tim comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Be hospitable. Take care of my boy Tim. For he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Maybe because he's a young feller. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to visit with you and the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. But he's going to come when he has an opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia, and that they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject, or be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they've made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I was reading this passage with just a whole new set of eyes, realizing that we are the house of God. And I was reading all these names, realizing that it's so easy to read them and not realize that they're part of our story too, and that their names could very easily be replaced with ours. I mean, we could take... Timothy, Apollos, Stephanos, Fortunatus, Akakakis, uh, Aquila, Prissa. We could replace it with Kyle and Sandy, with Bud and Jill, with people that are looking for places for people to stay, with people that are spending real time with one another, that are having real conversations with one another, because this is the storyline. We're not living some sort of shadow of the story. We're in the story. We are his house. We. We. Yeah, y'all. And me. It's crazy when you think about it. 
We're talking about real people doing real things with real greetings, with real holy kisses, with real lips, on real cheeks. That's just crazy to think. How could I read that my whole life and never really think about this is the people just like us? Likely some of them you'd be like, oh man, I do not want to give this person a holy kiss. Uh. <laughs> Don't you know some of those people had B.O.? Don't you know that? I mean, seriously, we're talking about real people. Listen, here's, here's some others. Ephesians 6, Tychicus is sent to Ephesus. Philippians 4, gifts are delivered to Paul by Epaphroditus. I found example after example after example in our Bible of these personal interactions. Listen to this one. Colossians chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Just replace his name with Steve or Scott or Jeff or something like that just so you can make it personal. I've sent him to you for this purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts and with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice, totally had to change his name because we couldn't call, continue to call him Jesus. Call him Justice instead. Y'all, that was supposed to be funny. I saw like one person smile. <laughs> Thanks for the <laughs> throwing a dog a bone. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. These are real towns with real people. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Keep your eye on Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Ar Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This seems like a no-brainer, and it seems like I'm just beating this dead horse to, this horse to, to death, and I, I'm just going to. <laughs> I just am. Because we can so easily read this story as something that's separate from us. Now, I just mentioned Demas and just mentioned some names. Listen to this last account I'll read to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes to Timothy. Says, Tim, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You think people walking away from the faith is a new thing? You think when that happens here, that it's somehow somebody's really, ooh, they must have really messed something up when somebody bails on you. Maybe you didn't at all. Maybe it's just nothing new under the sun. Because there are real demises today. In love with the present world, 
that walk away from the faith and walk away from the people of God. It happens every single day. It's not an indictment against Paul. They left Jesus' ministry in droves. Real Demas's. Demas in love with this present world. It must have broken his heart to write those words. What did he say just a few books earlier? Man, I love that dude. He's awesome. And then here he says it, just brokenhearted Demas in love with this present world. Real people who've walked out on real people. Demas in love with this present world deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, if I'm Timothy, I'm thinking, okay, wherever I go, I have to travel on foot. There's no cars. There's no land cruisers. You put in four-wheel drive and travel across country. There's no trains. There's no planes. I'm going to carry your cloak. Paul, you're always forgetting your cloak everywhere. Why do you always forget your cloak? You want me to carry your cloak to you just so you don't freeze over the winter. it, Paul. Seriously. I'm going to carry your cloak and your books and the parchments? How can I even carry my own goods? Real people with real cloaks, with real stories, with real inconveniences. They may have actually had a weekend where three families tried to move on the same weekend. Real, that just happened this weekend, for those of you who don't know. Like moving weekend extraordinaire. Real inconveniences with real people. I can't imagine that Timothy said, oh, good, I'm glad I get to carry all your goods across all of the Roman Empire, Paul. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, real people. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. It's pretty cool to hear that heart in Paul. Man... I had a lot more sermon left, and I'm just going to go ahead and shut it down. It's just more examples of that, just beating that horse to death, because I just don't know that we could over, over hurt that horse. I don't think we could. Because there's a temptation for us, and you may not realize it. The temptation for us is to read these stories and these letters and hear these sermons that we're hearing each week and these lessons and the small group teachings and not realize that this stuff that we're doing right now is the warp and woof of faith. Warp and woof is a term that has to do with, with making fabric. Warp is the fabric that goes one way, and woof is the fabric that goes the other way. And what you need to know right now is the lives that are, you're looking across the sanctuary at are the people that you're sitting beside? Are the people that you're thinking about that aren't here? Are the people that are sick? Are the people that are part of our body that are traveling or whatever? That's the warp and woof for faith. That's the warp and woof for these things to be lived out. The warp and woof, the fabric of faith is here and now with our names walking through these things because we are his dwelling place 
right now. The Hebrew preacher is trying to encourage the Hebrew church with that reality, and I'm trying to encourage this one. This isn't figurative. What we're doing here, it's not figurative. It's not an ideal. It's real people carrying real story in real time on a real storyline. It makes me swallow hard. I'm going to end with this thought. Having spent so much time in John, my mind automatically went at the end of this message to something that Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry. He also did it at the end of his ministry. Bookends to his ministry. The Passover, Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, remember the temple. It's going to be an earlier version of where he's dwelling now. It's the static version. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. If our Savior has zeal for his house, how can we not? How can we not be all in? How could we not possibly be all in to being the dwelling place for God? That's what the Hebrews preacher is saying. That's what I'm saying to you this morning. Let me pray. God, I pray that these last few minutes that we spent together, that they will be a time that, that you've, you have used and you will use in the life of our church to ground us or reground us, reconnect us or connect us to our identity as your house and the gravity of that. Lord, I pray that as I would expect and hope that it's something that you used in the life of the Hebrews church, that these weeks and months that we've spent together in these first, three, first six verses of chapter three of Hebrews will be a time that we looked at as a time where you made our, our, our view of our walk, our faith, our journey, um, all that we are, all that we do, the gifts expressed, the accountability that's enjoyed, the friendships, the relationships, the encouragement, that you would make all those things more potent. That as a result of the time that we spent together, just really low crawling through this verse, that you would make us a more aromatic, 
people, a brighter people, a truer people. A people that are engaging each other in meaningful ways and engaging you in a meaningful way. That you would guard us from ever just going through the motions and just getting our church on. I pray, Lord, that we together can swallow hard knowing that we're in a big storyline that may not in the micro, in the myopic, look like it's the greatest plan for us, but that we can trust that you're working out a bigger plan. I pray that it would be something that causes us to exhale to where we can trust and know that you do indeed work out all things together for good for those who are called according to your purpose and that ultimate good is your glory. Lord, I pray that instead of enduring those things that we can in fact then celebrate those things whatever they might be. In some weird way that we can celebrate and be thankful in all things that we can truly count it all joy. I'm shocked at what you called us into. I'm amazed that you escorted us into the storyline at the cross. We celebrate your work and your grace and your mercy and we enjoy your son together. In Christ's name we pray, amen.